Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Well, we made it. The dumpster fire that was 2020 is finally at an end. And with the turn of the calendar, we can actually look forward to what we can all only hope will be a much better 2021. Of course, the year wasn't going to go out quietly. No, 2020 wouldn't have that. Instead, it gave us all one final kick in the pants with the new and improved version of COVID-19 that is significantly more infectious than the already pretty infectious original version. Joy. But... As I record this, on the final day of a year defined by fires and protest and illness and death the world over, and as you hear it in the dawning of a new year, I think that it is time to look forward and search for any signs of hope that the next 12 months will be far better than those we've just escaped. I, for one, am immensely grateful to have received my first COVID vaccination shot, and will be sure to let you all know how the second one goes on the 5th of January. As a frontline healthcare worker, to have made it through 2020 without contracting the disease seems like somewhat of a minor miracle, and that's saying a lot for someone who doesn't believe in those. But... To know by the end of the first month of 2021, I'm going to have somewhere in the range of 90% resistance to this plague brings me a great deal of relief, and I'm hopeful that by the middle of the year, all of you listening will be able to share in that same sentiment. Of course, with that immunity comes the possibility that races might return in some form, and that brings me the most hope of all. I think that some races early in the season are highly unlikely. I'm looking at you, Oceanside. But others, especially those that are slated for the summer months, I think have a pretty realistic shot. Though, of course, so much can happen between now and then that I'm hesitant to get too far ahead of myself. Still, I feel better about this now than I did even a couple of months ago. What I'm most hopeful about, though, is that in 2021, we could find a way to heal as a community of triathletes and endurance sports enthusiasts who grieved over so much loss in 2020 and came to realize that we, like the rest of society, really have a lot of demons to face. We need to make our sport more welcoming to people of color and those with less resources. We need to figure out a way to be safer while training on the roads and find a way to make drivers understand that we are not an enemy or an inconvenience, but like them... We're real people, with every right to make it home safely, just like they are. And we need to find a way to participate in our sport that is safe for participants, the volunteers, and all of those who support us but don't train and race as we do. Triathlon is the ultimate in selfish pursuits, and in a year defined by selfishness, and where the consequences of that selfishness are so readily apparent in the daily counts of the newly infected and dead from infection, we need to be better at recognizing that our actions have consequences for others, and start to be more considerate before we embark on pursuits that benefit no one but ourselves. I'm very hopeful that we can see a much better 2021 that we can speak openly about what ails us as a society and figure out how to fix some of these things, and that we can have events that won't force us to make the kinds of choices that so many made last year, because people will be caring and considerate, vaccinated, and eager to move forward to a world without race cancellations and seemingly aimless training for no reason other than to stay sane. Like Iron Man always says, anything is possible. On the show today for the medical question... Part two of the interview from a collaboration that I did with Helen Murray, the producer of the Inside Try Show, and Dr. Michael Papadakis, a leading European cardiologist who advocates strongly for exercise, but also studies the effects of exercise on the heart. In this second part of the interview, Dr. Papadakis discusses the connection between endurance sports and atrial fibrillation, as well as the importance of being aware of the uncommon but important potential for silent heart problems that can result in unexpected sudden cardiac death. After that, I have a conversation with my guest for today, Hunter Allen. Hunter is widely known as one of the top experts in the world in coaching endurance athletes using power meters. He's the founder of Peak's Coaching Group, co-founder of Training Peak Software, and has been instrumental in developing and spreading the power training principles. And he joins me to help you make some sense of how our power meter can be used to inform your training and racing. If you enjoy the interview with Hunter Allen, then there's really great news for my Patreon supporters like Rebecca Adamson, who became a TriDoc Fellow at my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Rebecca and all my other supporters will have access to an additional interview with Hunter as we discuss more about power meters and some of the data that can be obtained from them. 
In addition, there's a video of my entire interview with Hunter that can only be seen by subscribers, and you can find information on how to sign up and see or hear that content at my Patreon site, which again can be found at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Helen Murray is a former BBC journalist and the producer of the Inside Try Show. She was very gracious to collaborate with me and provide me with an interview that she did with Dr. Michael Papadakis, a leading European cardiologist who advocates strongly for exercise, but also studies the effects of exercise on the heart. On the last episode in part one of that interview, you heard Dr. Papadakis speak about the effects of the heart in the chronic form and how it can cause what's called athlete's heart. In the second part of the interview on today's episode, you're going to hear Dr. Papadakis speak to the effects of endurance sport, or at least its association with uh, atrial fibrillation, as well as the potential for silent underlying cardiac problems to manifest themselves in a very scary and very fortunately rare way, and that is in sudden cardiac death. Who should be screened for these problems, who should be concerned, and whether or not we should really bother ourselves and be concerned at all. So here then is part two of that interview with Helen Murray and Dr. Papadakis. Tell me a little bit about atrial fibrillation and is there a connection then between that and endurance sports? So atrial fibrillation is an irregularity of the heart rhythm. Usually your heart has four chambers, two at the top and two at the bottom. The two at the top, which are the weak chambers, they are the ones that uh, essentially electricity gets generated. And then it spreads throughout uh, your heart and makes your heart pump blood around your body. Now, this process is usually fairly regular. You've got a pacemaker that contracts and sends an electrical impulse on a regular basis. Uh, in atrial fibrillation, what happens is that you've got multiple different centers firing all together. So essentially, uh, what w- we will call it an arrhythmia or an irregularity of the regular heart rhythm, which is very random, and it can affect individuals in a number of different ways. It's highly variable how individuals get affected. It's highly variable how athletes get affected. The the extremes of the spectrum will be someone who's completely asymptomatic and they go to their GP for a checkup of something completely irrelevant. The GP takes their pulse and realizes that it's very regular. He does an ECG and he diagnoses atrial fibrillation. The other extreme is someone who suffers from significant symptoms in terms of feeling tired, in terms of getting easily out of breath, in terms of getting dizzy spells, and in between, obviously, we've got a large uh, gray zone. Uh, The thing with atrial fibrillation and uh, endurance sport is that actually atrial fibrillation is the one condition that we have accumulating evidence that high endurance sports over a long period of time, so we're talking in the veteran athlete spectrum, so individuals in their 50s typically, uh, are more prone to develop atrial fibrillation. They might be five to six times more prone compared to someone who does uh, exercise in moderation according to the World Health Organization guidelines of that 150 to 300 hours, uh, sorry, minutes per week. And so if someone, um, well, basically, what are the symptoms then? So if, how how does someone know, let's say it's a triathlete listening to this, they've been doing triathlon for 10, 15 years. How do they know if if they've got it or if something's going to happen? So typically, uh, high endurance athletes will will, uh, report two symptoms. One is they may report palpitations. A feeling that the heart is fluttering, and they may typically develop that at nighttime, not actually during exercise, okay? And that happens because uh, uh, what we call increased parasympathetic tone, what means is that the heart is controlled by nerves in our body that fire, and when the parasympathetic system fires a lot, the heart slows down quite a bit. And that tends to happen particularly when we go to sleep, and that's why our heart rate slows down during sleep and picks up again when we wake up. So typically they may get woken up at night with a feeling of palpitations, okay? The other thing that athletes may uh, describe is a sudden loss of energy 
if they're running or cycling, for example, they may describe that they hit a wall. That's an expression that is commonly used. And what will happen is because the heart goes into this irregular heart rhythm, and in a way they lose a bit of that oomph, that uh, blood volume that the heart ejects every time it contracts, they're able to feel it as a, a loss of energy and they're not able to perform as well as they used to before, or that they just go on and then suddenly lights off in that the energy is gone and they're unable to continue. Is it a dangerous thing? So if someone is feeling those palpitations at night, what should they do? Well, if someone has uh, new symptoms and the good thing with endurance athletes is that they know their body very well. So they know the symptoms very well as well and they know when something new or something unusual has started happening. So if they get symptoms, they should definitely get advice from the general practitioner or a cardiologist who has experience with exercise and uh, dealing with athletic individuals. And again, Michael, is is the atrial fibrillation, is that more common among male, older male athletes than, um, let's say, older female athletes? Most definitely. And uh, the thing that we see, Helen, with atrial fibrillation, well, the, inc- the prevalence of atrial fibrillation is that if you've got individuals who do no exercise whatsoever, sedentary individuals, then they tend to have a higher prevalence of atrial fibrillation. Then as you start exercising and do that 150 minutes or 300 minutes per week that it's recommended for uh, physical fitness and cardiovascular health, we see that the incidence, the prevalence sorry, of atrial fibrillation starts going down. So, And we do have very good evidence that exercise is extremely beneficial, not only for the prevention of atrial fibrillation, but also for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. And then what happens is as people start doing more and more exercise and we're going to high endurance sport, you see that the prevalence of atrial fibrillation starts increasing again. And that's why we describe it as a J-curve. So high goes low and then starts coming up again. And that has been shown by a number of studies now in male individuals, in male athletes. However, we need to be a bit careful when we transfer that data to the female athlete because we don't have such strong evidence of that J sort of curve in the female athlete. So we know that similar to males, they do get the benefit when they go from sedentary to moderate exercise, but we haven't quite shown yet that if they start going to endurance sports, they tend to increase their chances of getting atrial fibrillation. Can it be treated? So if you are diagnosed with it, can you carry on doing your swimming, your biking, your long runs, your marathons, your ultra runs? <laughs> yes. So the short answer to your question is that it can be treated. However, there will be a number of things that we'll need to address. An endurance athlete need to be evaluated by a specialist. They'll have the ECG, they'll have the ultrasound scan of their heart. And then that specialist will be able to assess the degree of cardiac adaptation they have undergone. I said, for example, to you before that the chambers of the heart tend to dilate. And we know that there is a particular chamber, the top chamber that creates the electrical impulse called the atrium. And the more dilated that atrium is, the higher your chances of getting atrial fibrillation or getting recurrence of atrial fibrillation. So an individual needs to be assessed by a specialist and then they need to have a number of conversations. First conversation is about exercise. As I said to you before, exercise in moderation is definitely beneficial for atrial fibrillation. High endurance sport and particularly uh, sports uh, like, for example, an Ironman triathlon uh, does not necessarily add more to the cardiovascular benefit that you bet and will definitely, or definitely, it's likely that it will increase the chances of getting recurrences of that atrial fibrillation once someone has died for the first time. So there is a conversation to be had about the amount of exercise that the individual continues to do. And as you realize, that's a a, a two-way dialogue. You need to consult with the athletes, see what they perceive as quality of life, how much, how important exercise is for their quality of life and what sort of exercise they wish to do. The second thing that you need to do is just to ensure after testing the athlete that their heart rate 
doesn't go too fast because of the atrial fibrillation, either at rest or when they're exercising. The third thing that you need to do is assess uh, the risk of uh, a clot. What happens with atrial fibrillation is because the top chamber is beating very regularly, uh, the blood is not circulating as well as it should do in that particular chamber, and there is a risk of a small clot being created because of that. And that's if that clot travels north and blocks one of the arteries in the brain, then that's what we call a stroke. So it's important that you assess the different risks that that athlete may have and assess what's the risk of stroke. For the great majority of athletic individuals who are otherwise fit and well, with no history of diabetes, high blood pressure, or other heart issues, the likelihood is that the risk is going to be small, particularly for the younger ones, and by younger I mean less than 70 years old. And that, by default, will mean that the great majority of them, they do not require any blood thinning treatment to avoid a stroke. And then the last thing you need to do is uh, explain the options regarding what's the best possible treatment. We can potentially go with medication if necessary to control the heart rate. Or the other option we've got is to use medication or more advanced treatments which involve an invasive procedure in order to try and get the heart back into the regular heart rhythm. And with those, um, I guess with any of those treatments, it's all, it's completely down to the individual, like any medical circumstance. It's all about the individual, isn't it? Exactly. It's all about the individual and it's also uh, uh, about the assessment that the specialist does of that uh, particular individual. Uh, myself, uh, I belong to a more conservative uh, school in that I, I don't get anyone uh, to have any puncture or get a catheter in their heart unless I've got good evidence that they get atrial fibrillation on regular occasions. It impacts on their quality of life and they are going to benefit from such an intervention. And the other thing that we always have to consider, Helen, is that atrial fibrillation is a chronic condition in that once you had it for the first time, the likelihood is that that's something that will follow you throughout your life. Yes, someone may go and do an ablation and uh, put a catheter in and treat the atrial fibrillation, but the expectation is that whether that's in a year's or 10 years or 15 years' time, it's something that will probably reoccur. So if you're listening to this now and you are like like you in your early to mid 40s, um, let's say you have been doing running since you're a teenager, you've never had any kind of symptom at all. Would you just say, look, it's a good time, just go and get yourself checked out or just crack on and, and don't worry unless you get like those palpitations. There's, there's nothing to worry about. Well, I, I don't want to, con, uh, you know, to concern individuals unnecessarily, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to get individuals to come and see a sports cardiologist like myself. As a general rule, uh, I am pro uh, prevention. And as I said, I've just been elected as the president of the European Association of Preventive Cardiology, so I'm all for prevention. On the other hand, uh, you know, we need to keep it reasonable. If someone has been exercising all their life and they're doing well and they never had any symptoms, those are the individuals that are least likely to have an underlying heart disease, particularly, as you said, in someone who's in their 40s and 50s and they never had any issues whatsoever. On the other hand, yes, I do think that prevention is good and uh, I do recommend individuals who ask me that they do have that uh, checkup, which can be particularly useful in order to ensure at the end of the day that you're getting the maximum benefit at the minimum potential risk from the exercise that you're doing. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, totally. And and I guess the, the overriding message is exercise is good for the heart. <laughs> exercise is extremely good for the heart and not only for the heart, but for everything else in your body and your mental health. So that's a very important message. That's the overriding message. And as we all know, Helen exercise, unfortunately, is one of the most underutilized medicines that we've got in our armamentorium in order to treat a number of different conditions in the cardiology field and outside the cardiology field. And that's something we've been 
uh, fighting for and uh, with a loud voice because at the end of the day, even if you've got a cardiac condition, there is no individual that should not engage in any physical activity whatsoever. It's just how much of that physical activity they're able to do safely. And sort of building on from that, endurance sports like triathlon, like running, actually it's thumbs up for them as well. Yes, it is thumbs up for them as well, because as I said, the majority of individuals, they're not going to develop coronary artery disease. They're not going to develop atrial fibrillation. They will not have an underlying heart disease that may pose a risk to them. And they're going to gain benefits in terms of their cardiovascular health, in terms of the quality of life, in terms of their mental health, in terms of the longevity of their life. And there are studies out there that clearly tell us that high endurance athletes tend to live longer compared to individuals who are sedentary or exercise in moderation. Because at the end of the day, as you know, Helen, it's not just about how much exercise you do. It's also the overall lifestyle which goes without exercise. And that has to do with nutrition and a lot of uh, other things that uh, athletes address uh, very well. And I guess sometimes when we do see stories in the media or you hear about um, famous athletes being diagnosed or forced to retire early, perhaps with a heart condition, I guess part of why that makes an interesting story is because it is like that juxtaposition of you've got a really, really healthy athlete, an incredible athlete. And, And so it's almost like a society thing of, well, whoa, what, what's happening there with the heart and the athletic side of things? Exactly. And those, uh, those cases, there will be uh, out there uh, throughout the time. And we will see athletes who unfortunately they get diagnosed or have uh, a cardiac arrest or experience of the cardiac death during exercise. They're not going to go away. And that's why my belief in preventive cardiology and screening, particularly the younger individuals, holds true. Because at the end of the day, I can tell you that from the large screening program that we do in young people, where we screen in excess of 35,000 individuals per year in the United Kingdom, one in 300 will have a condition that has the potential to cause a problem. So it's important at the very least that they're aware and they're managed as appropriately so they are able to engage in the physical activity and exercise uh, they want to do. And the other aspect of it, I think, which, again, I I do understand it's a media thing or may attribute to the media, but it is important. Those sort of athletes that you describe, uh, we consider them the epitome of health in our society. Those are the individuals we use as doctors in order to say to people, please go into exercise because it has so many benefits for you. And when such an athlete comes so unexpectedly to such an event, whether we like it or not, the reverberations throughout the society are enormous and people start asking those questions. And exercise gets that bad reputation, which is unfair. And a prime example of that would be the Fabrice Mwamba. I mean, it's the most famous one, isn't it, in the UK, the Premier League footballer who collapsed on the pitch. But actually, that, you know, and he he went on to survive and everything, but he has had to retire from football. But that example did a lot to help get the message out there, didn't it? Exactly, exactly. And, and, that's, and that's exactly what we're saying. So message number one, exercise is definitely beneficial for you and endurance sports are beneficial for you uh, due the, to the overall lifestyle and exercise that you do. There will be a small proportion of individuals, but as you can see, one in 300, if you think about it, it's not that small, but there is a proportion of individuals that may predispose. So let's make sure that we know who these individuals are, that we manage them appropriately so they're able to exercise to their full potential and live their life to their full potential as well. I love this message. And just one one other thing which I'm intrigued about is with the screening, is that with... Um, for example, like youth players at Premier League, is that with, you know, the the um, county cricketers? Is that with the youngsters on the academy programme of British triathlon? Like, is it with governing bodies or is it at schools and things? 
Uh, it, it depends, Helen. So uh, a lot of the government bodies uh, have gradually encouraged uh, the players to be screened. Uh, some of them, they don't mandate it, but they strongly encourage athletes to participate in a screening program. And we've got so many examples from football to rugby to the UK triathlon. Most of the, all of our Olympic team uh, will get screened uh, before they participate in, in uh, Olympic Games. Uh, However, we also have schools because at the end of the day, to be honest with you, why screen an elite football player, an elite triathlete, and you don't screen in a way the grassroots, the young individuals who have the potential to become that elite uh, triathlete at a younger age. And in a way, if you think about that, it makes sense. A young individual would like potentially to know at the age of 14, 15, whether they've got something that may stop them realizing their dreams as an elite Olympic triathlete, for example. So it's a combination of individuals. I have to say that our National Screening Committee does not approve uh, at this point in time screening. I have to say that a lot of that has to do with resources, has to do with finances. And that's where the models that the charities like Cardiac Risk in the Young present come into place because it doesn't necessarily need to rely solely on funds from the national health system, which is overstretched at the best of time. And what would your dream scenario be for... I don't know, the, the sporting population, let's say. So, so my, my dream scenario would be that, uh, and that's what we've been trying to do over the past uh, 15 years with Cardiac Risk in the Young and uh, with my mentor here, Sanjay Sharma, and our group is build a group of specialists that uh, are able to uh, evaluate athletic individuals. They're able to appropriately give exercise prescription, and that word is very important, very underestimated, and unfortunately it's poorly taught in our medical schools, give appropriate exercise prescription to every individual. Uh, and we hope that we will soon have a group of individuals spread around the United Kingdom as uh, young consultants that will be able to provide that service. And for the time being, what we do with cardiac risk in the young is we go around the country offering screening at a small nominal price to anyone who wishes to be screened. You're doing amazing work, Thank Dr. You. Michael Papadikis. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And I love your passion for, for the subject and for getting the message out there as well. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And that concludes the interview between Helen Murray and Dr. Michael Papadakis. If you enjoyed it, you can find lots of other uh, really interesting interviews by Helen on her uh, regular show, which is the Inside Try Show. And that can be found anywhere you download your podcasts. Triathletes and cyclists who are new to their respective sports won't be in them for long before they start hearing from other more seasoned athletes that they need a power meter if they are going to be really successful on the bike. However, although the price tag for those tools have come down quite significantly over the past few years, understanding how to use them and what their value is still can be difficult for newbies to appreciate. Hunter Allen is widely known as one of the top experts in the world in coaching endurance athletes how to use power meters. He is the founder of Peaks Coaching Group, co-founder of Training Peak Software, and has been instrumental in developing and spreading the power training principles. His philosophy is that a power meter helps athletes discover their true strengths and weaknesses, qualitatively assess their training improvements, and refine and maximize the focus of their training. Over more than two decades, Hunter co-developed Training Peaks WKO software, co-authored the book Training and Racing with a Power Meter with Dr. Andrew Coggan, and wrote Training and Racing with a Power Meter, among other volumes. Hunter has agreed to take some time to join me today from his home in Bedford, Virginia, to talk about the value of using power as a cyclist or triathlete. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Hunter. Oh, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it and glad to be here. I've been a fan for a while, heard about you, and uh, I'm excited to be on the on the show. Well, thanks. I really appreciate you taking some time. It's uh, been a very difficult year. Um, you know, if you were going to concisely summarize it, how would you explain to the new cyclist or triathlete the benefits of using power to inform their training and racing? Well, you know, um, I love in that introduction how you talked about 
Um, the fact that eventually you get to this point as you start to get better and better and better that, oh, what is the tool that I need to kind of make it to the next level? And everybody says, you need a power meter, right? That's the thing that you need. And so, and that, that really is that, that point. You get to this place where I've, I've improved as much as I can. Maybe I've gotten some advice or help from a club mates or, or teammates or even competitors. And then you buy a power meter and then all of a sudden you realize like, oh my gosh, I don't understand what all of this means. But the, re- the, the reason that we use them, are, they're, they're really kind of threefold. Number one, to help see real time what your power output is. So what's your intensity and while you're competing or while you're training. So I want to know exactly what percentage of what we call our functional threshold power you might be at. So that's great because it helps us with um, doing the correct intervals and then also pacing. And so that's the number one thing, like real time, here's that data. Secondly is what do we do with that data afterwards? So we record all this information, we create all these squiggly lines and graphs and things, and we don't know what this means. And, um, you know, is the answer to world peace here? I don't know, (laughs) but maybe, right? Um, but those things also have meaning. And so then we look back and we see, okay, here we, we think we did this workout, but we actually did this workout. And so then that keeps us honest about what we did. So that's the second piece to it. And then the third piece is taking all of that information, that daily information, aggregating it over time and thinking about it from a perspective of, okay, what do I need to do, you know, right now, uh, in two weeks from now, in four weeks from now, in six weeks from now, in order to create the the fitness that I want? How much um, fatigue can I withstand? When should I rest? So that aggregated data tells us trends about um, about you and how you respond to the training, and then helps us make changes to that. And how does power give you more information or different information than, say, speed or, um, you know, heart rate or even RPE that a lot of people will use? Mm-hmm. So power gives us the the actual um, training dose, right? It tells us exactly what that dose is, how much you can produce right then and there instantaneously and over time. So heart rate is really just a response. As you know, it's just, you know, it just responds to something that's going on, right? Well, why is your heart rate 150? Well, you know, maybe you just went up a hill. Maybe you did a sprint. Maybe you've had 16 shots of espresso and you're getting ready to start the race. Um, You know, it doesn't tell us how much work we're doing. Uh, speed is interesting, but at the same time, it's impacted by all kinds of things. If you have a big headwind, uh, if you're going downhill, uphill, you know, I mean, all of these things impact speed. So speed's not a great measurement of of how we improve either a way to quantify our improvements. So power is the ultimate way to quantify our improvements and, and have that guaranteed yardstick, like a hundred Watts is a hundred Watts, whether you're going up a hill, whether you're going down a hill, whether you're climbing up, uh, you know, the side of, of, uh, you know, Mount Lemon, whether, you know, whatever, where either in a rainstorm, it is that number. And so once we can see this number, we can start to say, oh, wow, I, I, I averaged 150 Watts on this ride last time. This time I average 175 watts. I've improved, even though maybe my time has gotten slower, but that was because there was wind and rain and all kinds of other extenuating circumstances. But we know for a fact that 100 watts, that 150 watts, 175, that was an improvement. Yeah. So if I could restate it in a different way, power is kind of the independent variable and heart rate, speed, those things are going to be dependent not just on power, but on other things that might be going on within the individual and then also environmentally. Exactly, exactly. And so, for example, think of it, um, you know, our biggest, uh, our biggest thing, the biggest thing that, that keeps us from going fast on a bicycle is aerodynamics or a lack of aerodynamics, rather, right? It's the wind resistance that we're going through. So I can ride on my beach cruiser sitting upright and my, my flip-flops and I, if I had a power meter on my beach cruiser, I don't, but I could. <laughs> but if I did, then I could do 300 watts on that beach cruiser and be maybe going 18 miles an hour. 
Now, take that same 300 watts, put me in an aero skin suit, on a super fast tri-bike with aero wheels, shoe covers, a crazy aerodynamic position, a helmet, everything, every aero accoutrement you could have, and that 300 watts, instead of 18 miles an hour, I'm probably going 28 miles an hour now. So that's a huge difference right there in, in just like thinking about aerodynamics. Right. Okay, so let's kind of even get into the weeds a little bit more because nowadays uh, we're talking uh, in the winter right now, you and I, but uh, even during the summer, a lot of people are spending a lot more of their time riding indoors uh, for safety reasons, for time efficiency reasons. Uh, how or, or is people's ability to you know generate power, is it similar indoors as it is outdoors, even if they're riding the same bike on a trainer? Great question. And that is a uh, one that's been asked. And it is a tough answer because um, sometimes it's the same and sometimes it's not. Um, the, uh, the problem with it is it depends a little bit on the type of indoor trainer you have. So if you have an indoor trainer where you place your bike on and that rear wheel touches a resistance unit, which you then turn the rear wheel and goes into that resistance unit, that generally is going to be about 20 to 30 watts lower indoors than what you can do outdoors. You lose wattage in the, the slippage against that little roller. You also lose some of it in the fact that um, it's, you're measuring the wattage at back at the end of the, the chain of the cycle somewhat. Um, and then also there is a, a flywheel effect. Those trainers usually don't have a big, heavy flywheel that mimics the momentum of what a bicycle wheel would have. So those are, are the most um, different than other ones. Now, the newer trainers, the, the more smart trainers, which are called direct drive, where you take your wheel, wheel off and you put your, your bike on there and it basically the drive, the, the, the trainer becomes your rear wheel. They have a bigger, heavier flywheel. Um, you don't, you're not going through a ton of, uh, additional, uh, mechanical things and you're not having to slip a tire or anything. You've got that again, direct drive. Those will be closer. Uh, and so those I've seen within, uh, you know, five Watts of what my power meter says on my bike is that, you know, I'm running a power meter that's in my crank and then I'm measuring it in my crank and I'm measuring it and the power meter itself, which makes about, about good sense because there's about five to 10 Watts of loss in power in the chain and the, the derailers themselves. Yeah. And I so, just want to, I just want to clarify that for people who are listening that might've gotten confused. So on a direct drive trainer, the power meter exists within the trainer itself. And if you have right. a power meter on your bike, either at the pedals or the crank, you're going to see a discrepancy between the power generated at the pedal or crank and the pedal and the power measured within the trainer of about five to ten watts, and that represents the amount of power lost through the drivetrain. And as Hunter was saying, that that is to be expected. So that's yeah, why you'll see a difference. Absolutely. So that that's really that that's a key. Um, now I have seen some indoor smart trainers, the direct drive trainers, be up to about twenty or thirty watts off. Now. You know, some of that can be just a calibration error. I mean, you do have to calibrate these things, or there can be a calibration error, and there's a difference between that and a zeroing, right? We want to zero our power meter, just like you zero a, a weight scale in your bathroom, right? If you if you look down at your weight scale when you're about to get on there, and it says five pounds before you even step on there, well, I probably better put that back to zero. <laughs> right. 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 So we want to do the same thing with our power meters. We're just zeroing them. Oh, there's no weight. There's no force on the power meter. We need to make sure it's at zero. Then we get on and we do it. So that's a, a, a key thing. A lot of people don't realize they need to zero their indoor trainers. Okay, so you mentioned, uh, just briefly, you mentioned functional threshold power before. I want to get to that in a second, but just before I do, just give uh, listeners, for those few who don't know, w w succinctly, what is FTP, or functional threshold power? Sure. Functional threshold power is the best average power that you can maintain in a quasi-steady state without fatiguing. When you go above FTP, you'll fatigue sooner. And when you go below it, you'll fatigue, you'll, you can go longer. Okay. Now, 
And there's a couple of different ways of measuring that. Most people do a 20-minute test. Mm -hmm. uh, there is an hour test, which, uh, any, I mean, like anything, when you go longer, you tend to be more accurate. But but for most people will do that 20-minute test. Okay, so, uh, you know, the vast majority of people do their FTP tests indoors. And given what you've just described as being, you know, this lack of cohesion or coherence necessarily between indoor and outdoor power what's your recommendation for where people do their ftp tests right that's a great question so i would say if you're predominantly training indoors then you should do your ftp test indoors if you're predominantly training outdoors then you should do your ftp outdoors now um i've got quite a few athletes that i've coached in the past have some right now that i'm coaching uh, they train predominantly indoors, but then their events are outdoors, of course. So it's like, wow, they're getting ready for a half Ironman coming up next year. And when we go outside and they train outside, we need to know what's your number outside versus what it is inside so that when the day comes on race day, we don't mess up your pacing. Uh, so that's important. Okay. That's really interesting. And, and, you know, speaking of different FTPs, so an FTP for indoors and FTP for outdoors, what about people who ride different bikes? These days, everybody's got a bike for a different occasion. So uh, if you're going to be, you know, consistent with, you know, using FTP to gauge your efforts, should you have a different FTP for your different bikes? Yeah, that's, that's, that's another one, right? Um, it is. You're right. You have to because your FTP in a very aggressive triathlon bike can be very different than on your road bike. You know, when we when we when we when we lower our upper body, we close off that hip angle, it makes it more difficult to produce that power. So what you might have on your road bike, for example, let's say, wow, my FTP on the road bike is 250 watts, but I can't do anything to get over 230 watts on my tri bike. So then we just go with that, right? Your FTP on the tri bike is 230 watts. Now, you mentioned earlier that training over FTP tends to induce earlier onset fatigue. Uh, but we know that one of the ways to raise your FTP is to train above it. So how important and how often should athletes be considering be, you know, that their training be above their FTP? That's a great question. Um, and, and I actually was just talking about that with a, a client today, as a matter of fact. So it depends a little bit on where you are in the um, – in the periodization cycle. Okay. So, so right now we're heading into the off season for most of us here in the Northern hemisphere. Um, and so in that case, you know, I like to touch those two upper ranges above FTP. So the VO2 max zone, the anaerobic capacity zone, maybe even the neuromuscular power, which is kind of a sprint, which most triathletes don't, don't do, but sometimes you need to touch it anyway. I like to touch those things twice a month in the off season. One is a great VO2 max workout. You push yourself maybe five times five minutes at 115% of your FTP. Maybe it's six times three minutes at 120% of your FTP. Whatever that is, I want at least one in there, mainly one because I want your you and your body to um, remember the intensity of that interval so you don't kind of get shot, you know, shocked when you do it again. And then two, the second time, I also want to make sure that, hey, we're, we're getting some of this work in that at least you are maintaining some of this upper level energy systems. And that's, that's all it is. Now, in the season, totally different, right? So when you start spring, when you start in your season in summer, when you're getting ready for your event, now you may be doing those uppers ranges, especially the VO2 max range for triathletes in uh, once a week, um, if not maybe even twice a week. Uh, so, so that's a, a really critical piece to it. Uh, I don't have my athletes do a lot of anaerobic work, my triathletes, so, um, to, be, to be clear, unless they're doing something like Ironman Wisconsin, uh, where there's a ton of little small anaerobic hills and they would need that kind of energy uh, system to, to kind of tap into that. Right. Now, 
looking at power files over the years and looking at how uh, athletes perform uh, over time at different power, what have you seen? Uh, th this gets debated a lot, and uh, you know, I'm prefacing this question knowing that different athletes perform differently. But what have you seen in terms of generalities? in terms of cadence like you know we we hear a lot about how high cadence is important and then you'll hear well maybe not so much for age groupers maybe we should be looking at lower cadence what's kind of the sweet spot for for cadence uh for athletes to perform well at a certain power over time right um and that that is a great question so i think that when we think about cadence um there are a couple things that we have to take into consideration number one we, cadence is largely a result of the percentage of fast twitch muscle fibers and slow twitch muscle fibers you have. The more fast twitch muscle fibers you have, the more you want to rely on those str stronger muscles and therefore ride at a lower cadence. I want to mash this gear, right? I feel more comfortable mashing a gear. My legs don't burn when I mash a gear. That's my natural strength. The people who have more slow twitch muscle fibers they can't physically push the gear hard enough, so they want to spin faster and shift some of that stress to the cardiovascular system. So that's one thing that really impacts cadence. Now, is there a sweet spot for everybody? Well, that's probably somewhere in the, the 90 to 100 RPM range. Like the slow twitchers, maybe they kind of get closer to 100. The fast twitchers are maybe a little closer to the 90. Now, why is it important from a triathlon perspective to stay away from low cadences. Well, when we do, when we, we have a, a graph that we created called quadrant analysis, when you look at your, your uh, data and this graphs, how much force you uh, create when you pedal hard. And if we create too much force and we pedal harder with a slower cadence during the bike portion of our triathlon, we're using more muscle glycogen. Uh, and so you use more muscle glycogen from that slower cadence. And what does that mean? That means that you don't have it on the run. And so we really want to preserve that muscle glycogen as much as you possibly can on the bike. So having a little higher cadence, 90, 95, maybe even 100, allows us to preserve that gly those glycogen stores, shift the load to the cardiovascular system, and then on the run, you'll have a better run. All right. Those are, so those are really important things to consider uh, in terms of, you know, for the average athlete, especially for triathletes, to keep in mind for getting off the bike fresh. Uh, I do want to finish with one important question, and that is, you know, you talk a lot about how power can inform your training. How should power, and specifically your FTP, inform your racing? In other oh. words, how should you use your FTP to guide what kind of outputs you should be using in a race? Great one. Great one. Um, so a couple of things. So um, we've Dr. Coggin and I came up with uh, pacing guidelines based on the length of the distance of your triathlon. So for a sprint, sprint half, Olympic, full, et cetera. Um, and based on those things, there's a little bit of a fudge factor because um, newer athletes, uh, need to be a little more conservative and then athletes who've done five or 10 Ironmans, et cetera, they can be a little more aggressive with their pacing because they're able to handle a little more. But let's say, for example, if you're a brand new full Ironman athlete, um, then you're probably going to want to hold about 68%, maybe at the maximum 70% of your FTP for the whole 112 miles. A a pro, I've got tons of pros uh, who have, have sent me their power files from the Hawaii Ironman, from all kinds of Ironmans, where they have won the bike leg and they won the overall. Those guys are around 75% of their FTP. So just to give you a, 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 an example of how narrow this range is from a beginning first-time Ironman triathlete to a pro who's winning, they still aren't going that much harder in their bike leg. Um, and they still, that now allows them to run. 
Okay, now let's take it down to like an Olympic distance type of event. An Olympic distance, because it's shorter, right? Okay, it's only a 40K bike ride, and we've got a short run afterwards. We don't have to preserve as much energy. So that may be now a beginner can hold 78% of their FTP, maybe even 80% of their FTP. A pro could probably hold 98 or even 100% of their FTP for the entire 40K. So there's a bigger range in that shorter event uh, kind of thing. So something to think about. All right. Well, Hunter Allen, uh, you uh, have obviously had a very lengthy career uh, making, uh, really making hay out of just incredible amounts of data on power. And I just want to thank you so much for spending some time on the podcast today to at least give us a little bit of a window into what uh, you have learned and uh, where can people find out more about you and uh, more about how to you know, train and race uh, successfully with power. Absolutely. Well, um, obviously, you can, you can get a copy of my book, uh, Training and Racing with a Power Meter. It came out, the third edition came out last year. So that's a great resource, a great, uh, a great book to, to give you uh, an insight in that. And I have a whole chapter on triathlon. And then uh, I've got a great uh, website, peakscoachinggroup.com. And uh, I've got a wealth of information there as well. So uh, check, check that out, too. Okay, and I'll have links to that in the show notes. Hunter, thank you again for joining me. And uh, for my uh, Patreon supporters, uh, you can head over to the uh, Patreon website because Hunter and I are going to have an extended conversation about uh, getting into the weeds a little bit on some of the other aspects of uh, racing and training with power, as well as discussions on running and swimming power. Hunter, thanks again for joining me on the TriDog Podcast today. Oh, you bet. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. You could find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at iCloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, train hard, train healthy, and have a very, very happy New Year.